Hello, I'm Claudia Winkleman. Welcome to Business Unusual, a podcast from Vodafone Business. Now, across this series, I have the privilege of sitting down with some of the UK's most successful entrepreneurs and hearing firsthand their inspiring stories of building incredible businesses and what they've learned in the process. And today, I'm excited to be joined by someone who, at the time of this recording, is about to become a household name as not only the newest dragon on hit BBC investment show Dragon's Den, but he's also the youngest ever to join the illustrious panel at the age of 29. But let's rewind. He was a university dropout, his words, who, from a bedroom in Manchester, went on to build Social Chain, one of the world's most influential social media agencies with an estimated value of £300 million after going public in 2019. He stepped down as CEO last year, at the time leading a team of 700 people with clients including Apple, Amazon, Coca-Cola and Disney, and now heads up investment company Katina Capital. And if all of that wasn't enough, he's also a Sunday Times bestselling author, a speaker, received numerous entrepreneur awards, and is the host of his own hit podcast, The Diary of a CEO. Quite frankly, I feel so lucky we've been able to get a slice of his time. A very warm welcome to my guest, Stephen Bartlett. Hello. Thank you for having me. What an honor. Pleasure. We have nine million questions for you. Be prepared. Firstly, for newcomers to your story, tell us about Social Chain and what it does. So I started Social Chain when I was uh, 21 years old as a, uh, originally it started as a a media company. So we own some of the world's largest social media channels um, across multiple niches. We very early on felt that social media was going to be the new frontier of sort of communication. So I very sort of prematurely, some might have thought at the time, went around the world and met every young person I could find who had built big social media channels, you know, millions of subscribers on a Harry Potter page and 5 million subscribers on a food page and 10 million on a fitness page and um, a gaming page and whatever the mind could could possibly imagine. And I acquired all of those those assets, brought all of those people together and started sort of really building a bit of a media um, empire. And that spiraled into a, a marketing business because within our walls, we had such tremendous insight on how to use social media to achieve certain objectives that a business might have. Um, and then later in my sort of journey with social chain, um, we started, we launched our own products as well. And now today, as, as I speak to you, social chain does more more revenue selling its own products than it does anything else. And um, it's, it's on the mar- stock market now valued at just shy of 500 million um and it's you know it's clients on the marketing side are everybody from uber and amazon apple coca-cola um to yeah uh, the the other you know big brands all around the world so it's a pretty pretty staggering how quickly it grew over those seven years but uh yeah it's a media marketing and e-commerce company it's so extraordinary for anybody listening because um i can see you and i don't mean this in a bad way you're so young. How on <clears throat> earth did you know that? And anyone who goes to your website, I mean, you call yourself a university dropout. You're like, yeah, it wasn't really my thing, but I, but I did this. At the time, were you thinking, this is going to be huge? I definitely believed that it would be wildly successful. And if you look at the things that I wrote in my diary at the time, I was very, very convinced of the fact that um, both myself and my business were, were going to be wildly successful. In fact, that's why... <laughs> My debut book is called Happy Sexy Millionaire because that was uh, what I wrote in my diary at 18 years old. That's what I was aspiring to become um, through all of my insecurities and stuff. Yeah, I I genuinely believed the business would be very big. I didn't know that the path it would take. And I I think when you get into business, you can't accurately predict how your story will 
weave and wind through the world um, and what it will end up becoming. I did, definitely didn't think we'd become an e predominantly an e-commerce company, but uh, yeah, I definitely was uh, ambitious. So, As you say, Social Chain has a host of global brands on its books. How did you land that big client? So you are a young guy, as you say, traveling the world, going, hello, uh, nice to meet you, I'm <laughs> Stephen. Um, was it a domino effect? Did you just have to get one? And how on earth did you persuade them? I was very aware of what the problem that a lot of big brands around the world had, especially when social media was fairly new, it was intimidating. I positioned my company as being able to keep brands, at the, our, our strap line is keeping brands at the forefront of what is possible. It's trying to appeal directly to a marketing director. And then everything we did, it was centered on proving that. So I think really like one of the real reasons why our company above all others managed to pull in such a huge amount of clients very, very quickly was because we marketed our own business using social media in the same way that we did for our clients. And businesses don't really do that, especially B2B service businesses. They kind of forget that the most important client they have is themselves. So we did a couple of things. The, the real significant thing was we did personal branding. So I, you know, for probably about four years, had a microphone on me at all times strapped to my top. I had a cameraman following me all around the world for many, many years and put it on YouTube, put it all on Instagram and social media. I got, you know, three million followers from from doing that. And people buy from people. And yeah. um, having lots of followers when you're positioned as being an expert on a topic is a form of social proofing. So I would end up going to meetings with clients and the clients before the presentation would ask to take photos with me. And that's quite a good indication that your reputation was in the room before you got there. And so we never had a sales team. In fact, it's one of the crazy things about our business is even when I left, we, we had never hired an outbound sales person to sell the business because we didn't need to. We were so good at bringing the world to us. And I always said to my team, it's much, it's more difficult to be a peacock, but in the long run, it's much more, it makes life more easier than being a salesman. So we focused on being a peacock company that we're all in the papers. When there were six of us, we were the front page of buzzfeed.com. It said the kids that decide what all the other kids are talking about. We were called the Illuminati. We were called awful things, but we intentionally wanted to be called those things. And we wanted you to, we know that indifference is the only thing you can't sell. So we wanted you either to love us or hate us. And it ended up working out pretty well. I love that. You were going for full Marmite. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it, there was tears in our office a lot in the early days because we'd log into Twitter and there's, you know, the gadget show have done a piece on us or Vice have done some hit job on us when there's like 10 of us and we're all 20. Um, but it's because we could make anything trend on Twitter within 30 minutes. So people thought that <gasps> was pretty evil. No, it's yeah. phenomenal. And also people want to hire, A, you say people and also people who know what they're doing. It's not yeah, exactly, like you could sit yeah. there going, oh, I don't really know. What's my login again? I mean, exactly. you were really owning do. it and on it. Talk to me about running a company that is part of such a fast-growing digital world, as opposed to maybe creating a product and having long lead times, because the pressure to move incredibly fast, you must have felt that. Oh, 100%. And we had to design our, our business from the ground up to be fluid. And it's, it's crazy because in 2000, I think it was 2016, we made 95% of our money from Twitter and then in 2017, uh, the year after, we made 0% of our money from Twitter. So it's, it just goes to show how quickly things changed for us. And that was just because of algorithm changes and things that decisions Twitter had made. So we set our business up and our philosophy up that we were a business that was, as I said, at the very forefront of change. And what that meant practically, 
to give you one extreme example was um, at 9am every morning, every day, Monday to Friday, every member of our team would receive a text message and that text message detailed to them everything that had changed in social media, why they'd been asleep. And it was co- it was constant. We had to continually understand what Snapchat were doing, what TikTok were doing, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, so that we could deliver that for our clients so that they would be at peace and that they would feel that they were kept, their partner social chain was keeping them at the forefront of what is possible. And that's just one example. And it's, it gets much more extreme than that because obviously sometimes... We'd be in the office in, I don't know, midday, and we see that Facebook have released a live video. Um, and we know that early adopters tend to get the highest rewards, especially as it relates to new features. There tends to be extra reach, extra engagement for those that have um, used features first. So we'd experiment in the next hour. We'd then call Warner Music and say, listen, you're launching with this artist today. We found a new way to do it. Can we go live this afternoon? And a business will be very quickly. And so... making sure that the people in our business were philosophically aligned to that um, ethos was very important. But I am deeply, you know, I deeply enjoy the speed. I deeply enjoy being agile and change and innovation. So it would be pretty hard to be around me in in that business and not be pulled along in that way. And it was incredibly exciting. I mean, I've got a question for you. Did you sleep genuinely? Because it sounds like you have to be so on top of it. It's, it's a really fascinating question. And I, I can add to that. So I can say, you know, in 2019, I traveled 50 weeks a year. I was at home for four weeks in the whole year. I spoke, you know, I'd speaking on stage in some country, the Ukraine or Italy. I did. I wasn't at home, you know, three or four times a week, uh, 700 employees. I, and I did sleep. I never have. I've never had a sleep problem in my life. I've never. It's never, never been something that's ever concerned to me. I sleep like a baby and I sleep anywhere. That's testament to your, you must have an inner calm. I want to ask you about age because I mentioned it at the beginning and you are yet to hit 30 and you've already done what none of us will do by the time we're 80. Did you use your young age, was it an advantage or sometimes a disadvantage with clients? The answer is actually both. It's very interesting. I, I actually, I remember looking back at one of my investor emails I sent when I was 19 years old. And you can tell I'm 19 years old because the date is on the Gmail email. And I told the investor that I was 18 when I was 19. Wow. And I was, it's only a couple of days out. But I yeah. remember actively wanting him to think I was 18 instead of being 19. Because in certain situations, the way that I view it is expectation yeah. versus um, reality, the gap. So if, if someone expects, if, if I'm 18, the expectation is pretty low, right? Oh, look at him. He can draw a picture. Like it's very yeah. low. But if I come in here, this is the reality of how I deliver myself, how I present myself. The difference is impact. And this is the impact you're having on people is the difference mm-hmm. between the, what they expected and what, what you delivered. And so I think at, at, there was state, there was moments where I was, tr- I was really, really lean, leaning into the fact that I was an 18 year old. However, as you move through your career and you're in the boardroom with the CEO of the world's biggest company, whatever, and you're trying to persuade them of your idea and your experience and that you're a safe pair of hands, as they call it, um, then it was incredibly important to do the opposite, which was for me, bringing in people around me that were quite clearly, as we as they call them in business, grey hairs. Especially as it related to banks as well in raising, when our company went to the stock market, banks giving you £20 million or whatever, they want to see what they call a grey hair CEO, which is someone that is seasoned, a veteran, who they can trust, who, um, yeah, who's going to give them that peace of mind. So I would then lean on those people and I would make it clear that my sort of skill set is 
the social media piece, but the operational piece where experience really does matter or the financial piece where experience really does matter was solved by these other people. And I'm just uh, playing my role. You've been quoted as saying that you've watched Dragon's Den since you were 12 years old. Yeah. Um, A, is that true? And B, were you always going to have a business? Um, So I... It's definitely true. I, I didn't just watch Dragon's Den since I was 12. I've watched every episode, every remake of Dragon's Den all around the world, from Shark Tank in the US to, they also call it Shark Tank in Australia. They call it Lion's Den in Germany. Um, there's an online Irish one that I watched a lot of when I was younger. Don't really think there's many episodes that I haven't seen, to be <laughs> honest. Um, was I always going to be in business? So it's funny because I didn't, when I was younger, I didn't know, I didn't know how you made a business. So I was going around telling people at one point after my little stint of wanting to be a dentist, then going on work experience and realizing it was the most boring thing in the world. Um, I, Apologies I would, to all dentists. Listen. Well, you know, I think they'd agree. Um, after that phase, I, I started telling people that I was going to manage a big business. That was the phrase I was always using when I was like 12 to 16. And I was saying that because I didn't know how you made them. No one had ever told me how they became to be. So I, I'd seen people that like managed them, but I didn't understand the concept of ownership. So I would say, I'm going to manage a big business one day. And yeah, I started doing that when I was like 14, 15, 16, started my own little companies and, and then, yeah, went off to university to study business, dropped out and eventually started my own. When you got the call from Dragon's Den, was it an immediate yeah. yes? So I just quit. I just quit social chain. So we're in the middle of the pandemic, right? When I, when I found, when they called me. I think in my heart it was an immediate yes, but I think I played hard to get a little bit. Smart. Not even with the BBC, more with myself. It was more like, don't make a quick decision, Steve. Don't make a quick decision. But uh, but in my brain, it was going, obviously, yes. Just, you know, obviously. Yeah. I was like, Give well, me I'll the time and date. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I, was, I asked my friends. I was actually away for my birthday. So I asked all the friends I was with. I said, listen, I just got this call. These are my best friends. I said, let's take a vote. Because I was actually, I called, at the same time, two, two channels called me. The BBC yeah. was one of them and I won't say the other one. And I'd, I'd basically gone, I'd basically agreed to do a show on this other channel. And um, so I said to my friends, what show do you think I should do? And it was a five to six vote for Dragon's Den. But I knew I wanted to do Dragon's, so it doesn't matter. Like, yes. you know, I, I was trying to be diplomatic, but in my head I was, of course, I, you know, it meant so much to me as a kid. So, and I felt a sense of responsibility to represent people like me on that show. Absolutely. Know. Have you filmed Yeah. Anything? How was filming? Amazing. And really surreal. Like, I've got, to, I've got to say, like, what the hell am I doing there? Like, I, I was sat next to Peter Jones and Deborah Mead, and it's almost like they're not real. Because I've watched them. I mean, mm-hmm. Peter Jones has been there for 17 years, maybe 18 yeah. now. And Deborah Mead, I think, 15 or 16. And um, Yeah, you would have been like shoulder, 14. You'd have been 12. 12. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 12 when Peter started. So I've been watching him on screen since I was 12. And I'm like, and it's weird, you know, like sitting next to him. But they were all just so am- amazing to me. They were also just kind and they were, you know, yeah. Peter Jones is just like, he looks like, you, you know, he's supposed to be like seven foot. At this guy's a massive man, right? Yeah. But he is the nicest man I've ever encountered in my life. Like on camera, you know, he can be a bit tough as a negotiator in the den. But off camera, he's just the nicest, sweetest human being I've ever encountered. And Deborah is just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. smart. Um, and when yeah. people come in and pitch, I'm interested in whether, because you're the new, you're young, you're yeah. smiley and lovely. Did you did you want in with everything, or were you 
Or did you suddenly forget about the TV cameras and became your business self and you were quite yeah. happy to go, I'm out? Yeah, I was super happy to go, I'm out. Even if it was like an emotional story at the end of the day, I'm there to invest. This is not where I do my charitable giving. Like there yeah. are other avenues where I'll donate to charity. So this is a business decision and it's my money. Like, do you know what I mean? I can yes. spend that money on other things. Like I could spend it on my nieces or, you know, something else with my family. I could spend it in other places. So to give it to someone is a really serious decision. More from my chat with Stephen in just a moment. First, I want to introduce a brand new initiative from Vodafone Business. In the last year, there's been a huge rise in the need for businesses to get online. Small and medium enterprises make up 99.9% of the UK's business population. Founders and entrepreneurs have never had so many decisions to make when it comes to technology. Digital skills are more important than ever, but at least a third of small business owners in the UK said they aren't sure which tools will best suit their needs. Many haven't invested in any digital support. Some have only the most basic cybersecurity. That's why Vodafone have introduced Business.Connected, a free online training program to support 100,000 businesses across the UK. It offers free webinars, workshops and online training modules. There are different levels of upskilling to cater to those just starting their online journey, as well as businesses looking to build on existing experience. Find out more via Vodafone Business Online Knowledge and Resource Centre. Hub, where you can sign up to business.connected and connect your business to the free tools and training you need to digitally transform. Search Vodafone Business VHub. Stephen, let's continue. You stepped down as CEO of Social Chain in December 2020. Was that hard? Was that like giving your baby to a babysitter? And I mean, did it make you quite sad or were you, was it time? It was definitely time. I always talk about the importance of knowing when to quit things in life. And for me, that was the perfect time to quit. You know, people always glamorize this idea of like not quitting. It's seen as being really like virtuous and courageous to like not quit things because, you know, they, that phrase that knocks around that quitting is for losers. It's come to come to be true in my life that the opposite is actually true. And quitting is the like really important thing that you have to do before you start your next thing. And people don't talk about the art of quitting enough. And so one of the things I talk about in my new book, when I talk about the fact that I quit my business and how I've been able to quit all of these things, school, got kicked out of there for, for quitting, going to lessons and then university and then my first company, Wallpark, and then social chain, why, why I'm able to quit with such ease. And because I think it's a very logical flowchart-esque decision where you say to yourself, listen, are you thinking of quitting? Whether it's your job, your relationship, whatever it, it might be. If the answer is yes, why are you willing to, why are you thinking of quitting? And then the flow chart kind of spirals into two directions. Mm. And it's either because it, something's really hard, like a marathon, right? And it's just really, really difficult, or it's because it sucks. And for me, that's where I found myself, where I found that the situation I was in, for me, started to suck a little bit in terms of the control mm. I had over the, the business and the future of the business. I tried to change it I, I, and I couldn't. And then I, even if I could change it, the effort it would take me to change this business were no longer worth it for me. So... I made the decision to quit and I was at total peace with that decision. A, that's excellent. And also B, it's not like you had, you didn't smash it. Like mm. your work is done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, the bits that I wanted, the bits that I was, I wanted from my company, the control that I wanted and for us to pursue a certain strategic mission, I could now go and do 
myself in a new business where I had all of that control. And there's this crazy thing when, when you're 21 years old and it's a paradox of like young entrepreneurs, you start the business and you, you don't know what you're doing. So you do need help and you do need money. But then if you stay in that business for 10 years and say you get to 31 years old, by 31, you have less control than ever before, but you're more capable than ever before. Yes. So because you've you've now learned the lessons and you're but you can't but you've lost the control and you've given away the business because you needed to when you were young and naive. So the thing that you should probably do is start again with all of that expertise and resources that you now have. So that's what the decision I made was I just need to start again. Lots of entrepreneurs who I've spoken to for this podcast, they're now I've speak I've spoken to them, they're now on their second or third. They do it, they yeah. build it up and they go, Thank you very much. And then they start something else, often in a completely different area. Uh, but tell me about your new business. I think it's Katana Capital. So there's three, there's three, three companies. Katana Cap- Capital is just an investment vehicle. So I, I do some of my Dragon's Den investments through there. And if I invest in other companies, and I'll do it through there. So I'm a big investor in Huel, um, which is one of the, the things. It is now the fastest growing e-commerce company in the country internationally. I'm an investor in lots of big sort of biotech firms in the mental health space. I'm an investor in the biggest psychedelics business in the world, worth yeah. three billion now. Um, I'm also a creative director there as well. So that's just an investment vehicle. The two businesses that I'm predominantly focused on, one of them is called Flight Story, and it helps companies that are, that are about to IPO and go to the public markets. That's a new business. It's doing very well. It will list on the stock exchange itself very shortly. And I think the valuation of that business will be just under 100 million. And it's only the business is not at 12 months old. I mean, it'll wow. be 12, 12 months old when it is. My other company is called um, Access Packs, which is in the blockchain space. So this new emerging world about decentralization and crypto, et cetera. Um, developed with a team out in San Francisco, who are the, the technical ex- hub of expertise for our business. And it's building new applications in the NFT blockchain space, which you've probably heard a little bit about um, in, in the press and stuff. Uh, yeah, that business has just raised uh, five million at fifty million valuation. So that's another very exciting project that I'm that I'm thinking about. And those are my two central businesses: Flight Story and um, NFT Labs. Uh, and its first application is called Access Packs. And then outside of that, yeah, my life is really diverse. Obviously, the podcast I do is a business in and of itself. It employs maybe ten people full time. Uh, I DJ. I write my book. I've just done a agreed a deal with Penguin to do. I probably should be announcing this as it was only yesterday, but who cares? <laughs> I just agreed to deal with Penguin to do two two more books. Fantastic. And, I mean, on the subject of books, your book, Happy Sexy Millionaire, earlier this year, was the Sunday Times bestseller. And as you mentioned, you have your own hit podcast. It's huge, The Diary of a CEO. What was the motivation behind creating those? Is it that you want more people to join you? You're saying, this is possible. Come with me. Look what I did. Mm-hmm. Or is it that you're interested in talking to others who might have had a similar journey to yours? It's yeah, it's definitely all of the above. So, so there's like there's a couple of things here. So the first thing is that I write about this in the book as well. I genuinely do, I, I I'm really focused on like resisting all labels. So I come out of social chain. People could in the world could call me a social media CEO, but that's just not true. And I think there's this weird thing that humans do where we try and label ourselves to make us understood and to fit in, but it actually ends up, in my view, being quite harmful to do that so we'll say i am a xx i am a black entrepreneur ceo social media and we try and give ourselves those tags and then we the problem is when we when we label ourselves it's like putting yourself in a box you have to follow the implicit instructions that come with those labels so i am a mother i am a poor you know like in and that i find confining because the reality is we're all very multi-dimensional and so when i came out of social i made the very conscious decision that i'm going to be 
the label that I'm going to adopt is my name. Like I'm Stephen and I, I love music. So now I've learned to DJ. I love theatre. So I've put on this big show called The Diary of See Alive with, you know, there's 30, probably a cast of about 50 in total, but there's 30 of us on stage and it's theatrical and musical and there's explosions. And, and then my podcast is I love um, meeting people and having those conversations and talking and uh, the curiosity of it. So I do that. And my book is just this medium in which I can investigate topics that mean a ton to me and questions I want to answer. And uh, the psychedelics thing is I'm fascinated by mental health. So I went and became the, I'm still the creative director of, of a $3 billion psychedelics business that's curing mental health disorders and addiction. And like Huel as well, I, I joined the board there because I'm into fitness and being healthy. And it's a big part of my life now. And I'm just doing whatever the F I want to do. And yeah. I'm I'm just pursuing it all at the same time um, with a level of focus in there because I luckily have teams. But that's what I'm doing in this phase of my life. I'm unlabelable. What is it? about being an entrepreneur that you love? Freedom, definitely. Because at any, I know that because at any point in my life where I've not had freedom, I've had a really bad allergic reaction. Mm. It's a very deep allergic reaction. And then I'm probably fundamentally like unemployable in the sense that I will just make my own rules. And then I think that's probably, those are probably the two things. And then also, the possibility of really exponential, like really exponential crazy returns if you are to be successful. Maybe there's a bit of a gambler in me in that regard where I'd rather risk it all for a biscuit, you know what I mean? As opposed to playing it safe. I'd really, like I, I always reflect on this moment when I was 14 years old and I'm sat on this wall in my street looking at my house, which was smashed to pieces and the windows were broken and there's like the grass is six foot high. And then looking up and seeing this plane, and I'd never been on holiday. I'd never been on holidays. We never went on holiday as a family. And thinking, and just almost this juxtaposition between the people in that plane, which I assumed were going on holiday, and then the life I, like we were living as a family, and just thinking, like, why? what's the difference between me and those people on that plane? And thinking that they're, I wonder if my family and the people that were like me, they wanted this from their life. Did they want to not go on holiday and not to have nice things? And I remember thinking that I was, I just would do anything to be the person on the plane going on holiday somewhere. All of this was like, this is why at the start of this conversation, I talked about insecurities because people never really talk about it. But insecurities are probably one of the greatest drivers of motivation for people. It's that like desire to escape the inadequacy of thinking that you are different. I'm the only black person in an all white school or I'm the only poor person in a middle class area. That, that creates a real sense of... Um, an attempt to escape psychological discomfort, which looks like motivation and drive. People say you're so ambitious. It's like, no, I'm so insecure. How do your family live now out of interest? It's interesting. So like my brothers and sisters are all really good and I support them in any way I can, whether that means paying rent or whatever else for them. Um, but they're all very smart and their own people. And my, my mum and dad, it's interesting. So they won't let me like buy them a house. They won't let me like, buy, you know, they won't let me like buy them a house. Or, I want to call them. I want to get, yeah, yeah I, and they need a gold jacuzzi, but they won't. Well, yeah, they don't, they won't, they won't. I've been very, I don't know how else I'm meant to deliver that. Maybe I just send the gold hot tub to the house. But if I, I remember sending a message to my dad, like even last week saying, if you want me to buy you a car or a house or you want to go on holiday somewhere or anything, just help, just tell me where. And I'd love to do that. It'd be my pleasure to do that, was the quote in the email. I'll, so I pay for all, you know, I provide their food every week. And like my mum wanted some teeth, so I, you know, she wanted her teeth done, so I did her teeth and things like that. But yeah, it seems like they are quite content with where they are. 
Of course. So. I love your dad for not replying, yes, I'd like to go to Barbados tomorrow. I quite like the look <coughs> of interested. Park I've Lane. I've asked him every year. Yeah, I've no, asked him every year. Lovely family. You have received so many accolades. The Sunday Times bestseller. You've won a gazillion entrepreneur awards. You appeared on Forbes 30 under 30 list and more. What single achievement, if you can just give me one, what, what means the most? If we're talking about like awards, weirdly, the one that always springs to mind in terms of awards, right, is the um, Manchester, the city of Manchester and the mayor put me into the Hall of Fame in the city, which is, Aww. that was just really cool because I love the city and I, I built my life there. I built my businesses there. And so for them to put me in the Hall of Fame alongside some of my idols, like Rio Ferdinand and stuff was amazing. What the greatest moments in my life are, have to be moments where it had a great impact on other people. So actually my mindset, this podcast, the podcast that I do, just because I know how many people it reaches yeah. and and then some of the bigger speaking events I've done. I did one in Barcelona in particular where it referenced where there was 10,000 people in this arena and that was just magical. There's nothing like that. It takes me like a week in solitude just to recover from all the emotions. So yeah. probably those, those moments, yeah. Before you go, some quick fire questions, Stephen. What three words would you use to describe your businesses, your the future of your businesses, if you like. Sure. So innovative, and mm-hmm. I, I use that word because the world is changing quickly. I operate in ever-changing landscapes. So we always have to be innovative in our businesses, which means constant, constant change and designed for change, like change, love it, excited by it. The next is, I, the word that came to mind was family, which was just like the, the type, and Pete, this is super cliche, people go, hey, you know, family, you're there to work. Like, no, you, you could be spending 10 years together. So you want to be surrounded by people that you have a family-style relationship with, which is centered on reciprocated mutual care. And then lastly, I would say ambitious, which again, like if you want to be happy in your life, you should probably, for most people, be striving forward and challenging yourself. And so having a worthwhile challenge with people that you love is for me the real path to fulfillment. What three things couldn't your businesses live without? Yeah, I mean, it's almost as crazy. It's almost the same answer, which is the people, right? So the first thing is by definition, Oxford Dictionary definition, the definition of the word company is group of people. That's mm-hmm. exactly what a business is. It's just a group, a collection of people and their ideas and the way you bind them together with culture. It couldn't live without its philosophy. I think underpinning and what brings those people together is they all have a set of like shared values and philosophy. That's what binds them together and produces their ideas and the way they interact with themselves and clients. And then I'd say, I'd say inspiration, which is yeah. just the fresh new and that's probably I'm probably speaking to the point of innovation there but yeah it couldn't live without inspiration from its people from new things from other areas topics industries so yeah we're so grateful you spoke to us because you are so busy and you are flying and we're incredibly grateful here at Vodafone Business so thank you so much thank you thank Thank you for having me it's an honour inspiring was that. What a joy to speak with Stephen about social chain and the entrepreneurial energy that floods all the various things he does. And also hear how he's trying to use his status and influence to open doors to others who may traditionally feel that they're excluded from running their own successful companies. 
Make a date to join me next time as I'll be joined by another brilliant founder, this time Michelle Kennedy, who created the dating app Bumble. She then moved on to found Peanut, an app for women that aims to make sure none of us have to navigate life alone, especially the hard parts. But that's next time. Thank you so much for joining us today for Business Unusual. We'd love you to rate and review the podcast. And while you're there, please do subscribe to hear more from the UK's most inspirational founders in this series from Vodafone Business.